Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I have the very special privilege of introducing my dear friend Dale Stenberg to viewers of this program. Uh, as it turns out, there are two reasons for this. Of, of, of first importance, many will, be, will, many will be aware that this program is sponsored by the Davenant Institute, an organization dedicated to the renewal and creative appropriation of Protestant orthodoxy, and at which I have the honor of serving as a teaching fellow. As of today, Mr. Stenberg is officially joining our posse of fellows, and so this podcast serves as a way to introduce him and all that he has to offer to the church. Dale is raising support to do his work with us, and uh, if my word carries any weight, let me just say along those lines that he's eminently worthy of whatever support is offered to him. The, the second reason to have Dale join us today is that Dale will, as, as part of his work with the Davenant Institute, be joining me as another host of this podcast. We plan to do to do many interviews as co-hosts, and there will be still be several episodes where it might just be he or I and a guest. Uh, some episodes as well, like this one, will just be a conversation between he and I, perhaps based on a chapter of a book or, or something else like this. One of the reasons uh, I'm excited that Dale is joining the Davenant Institute as well as the Pilgrim Faith Podcast is that is that Dale, I think, is both interested in and has a gift for communicating how a lot of the themes that we like to talk about at the Davenant Institute actually reach down all the way to the ground in an ordinary Christian life. Well, it's crucial to, to recover classic principles on a lot of the questions that we have in front of us, thinking about things like natural law or metaphysical first principles or political first principles or, or what have you. Ultimately, there is a a kind of contemporary and ordinary dimension to any really wise project. It really has to, to hit the ground at some point. And I think Dale is, is uh, his mind is there and he'll help us, uh, he'll help uh, uh, thread those threads as it were. Uh, to, and, and that's because, you know, knowing, uh, to know is not just to have the, uh, an abstract pattern held in one's mind, but to be but to be able to read one's circumstance in one's life and to know how the, the pattern that we know both illuminates and shapes our ordinary experience of the world. And both scripture and the, and the high philosophical traditions together are agreed in that something threads together the cosmos and then the polis and the individual soul. Uh, and sometimes we're, we're better uh, especially if we're kind of intellectuals and a bit heady, we're better at talking about the first two rather than the last one. How does the the music of the spheres, as it were, and, and the laws that make a society function well, how do they reach into an ordinary 21st century life and inform what it means to live as a, a faithful Christian in just my particular circumstance? Uh, so Dale, I, I'm I'm happy you'll be joining us, brother, and perhaps you could spend a, a few minutes telling us about your relationship with Davenant and what attracted you to uh, throwing your name in with our gang? Sure. Well, thank you so much. Um, very good uh, introduction and I'm humbled to be here. I'm uh, excited for what we're going to do and uh, hopefully uh, we can turn our conversations into a lot of good for the church. So that's, that's the prayer. Uh, right. So I came into contact with Davenant um, several years ago, first through a friend of mine who was sort of sending me articles and saying, hey, you should check this out on various subjects, whether it was philosophy or theology. Um, and so as I began to read, I started to think, 
these guys are saying, I, and I was in seminary um, at the same time working through systematics, and they had the systematics nailed, but they were saying it in a way that was a lot broader. In other words, it wasn't just about systematic theology. Uh, they, they try to bring in the entirety of uh, creation as an, a way that we should interpret it to know God better, mm. right? And um, I, was very, I was fascinated by the project at first. And then I showed up to my first convivium that's held uh, every year, uh, sans COVID years. Uh, <laughs> right. Where, we, where it, was, um, it was the most unique Christian conference that I had ever been to. Um, I met such uh, wonderful people with um, genuine curiosity about knowing God and loving him and loving neighbor better. Um, and then the setting, you know, you nestled into a top of a mountain in a cabin, having conversation with uh, like-minded people. Um, but it was at that moment, the first convivium that I realized with all my training, with all my study, I really hadn't approached uh, knowing anything, really, <laughs> right? Uh, so it was um, an intellectually humbling um, experience, and I craved more of it. Um, so I got involved with uh, getting to know the people that were associated with Davenet, the people that were attending the conferences, but also uh, the people that were presenting papers, and you, and Brad, and Peter Escalante, and uh, the whole gang. And then um, friendships just formed. And, uh, you know, in God's good providence, here we are. So yeah. um, it's, been a, it's been an interesting uh, thing to sit back in retrospect and watch the development. Very pleased with it. So Yeah, yeah. We're really happy that you're, you're joining our posse, as I've said. Um, yes. You know, maybe one thing that would be worth talking about for, for our listeners is uh, what's, what's a, a, a sort of theme that, that is uh, uh, attractive to you at Davenant that sort of you know, uh, uh, something that's kind of a disease you caught from, uh, from, from them, as sure. you will, if you will, that, uh, you know, is still uh, uh, incubating in your soul and, and, and is kind of directing your attention in your mind. You know, what's, yeah. what's Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think two, two primary things. The, num the, the first one was an introduction uh, to natural law. Mm. Um, I, remember, I remember reading a series that Brad Littlejohn had um, written, I think it was on uh, Reformation 21, and it was on two kingdoms. What the, and this was when Van Drunen's book came out, and right. that conversation was happening, and Brad was sort of responding back using primary sources from the Reformation. Um, and even though I disagreed with uh, some of Brad's conclusions, I was introduced into a, a broader understanding of natural law, how that mm. works, what it looks like. Yeah. And, um, and also philosophy, uh, you know, as a sort of uh, mainline evangelical uh, kid growing up in, in, the, in the church, philosophy was what pagans did, you know. And if there was a religious take on philosophy, well, that was what the Roman Catholics did. But as Protestants, you know, we have the Bible. And yeah. so we don't need your philosophy, Mr. Philosophy Man, like I right. have everything I need. And what the Davenant did was show me that no, philosophy is um, what we're already engaged in, whether you like it or not. And uh, Christians should be, we should love wisdom, 
right? Mm. Um, and and uh, so the, there was philosophy and then there was natural law. And what natural law and understanding of it started to do for my thinking, what you mentioned in the introduction, uh, there are patterns that we see, mm. right? Um, and James Jordan is really good at this. And so is Peter Lightheart. But when I was tuned into these patterns and I could start to go, that's right. I just know that because that's the way I live my life in accordance mm. with these patterns. And the more in harmony I am with them, the more peaceful my life is. Then a guy like me takes the, the theological language of uh, natural law and sort of brings it into myself and say, okay, what does this mean for my marriage? What does this mean for my church life? What does this mean for the polis, as you said? Right. Um, and one thing that was really interesting was sort of the archetypal structure uh, um, of everything, but in particular with hierarchies. So there is a hierarchical structure and that has real import in your marriage, right? You as the leader. Yeah. Uh, it has real import into your ecclesiastical life and then into the civil sphere. Right. Um, so all these spheres of authority were starting to come in line. And I was, I was a young, rambunctious, uh, you know, sort of anti-authority kid my whole life. And in, in, even into my uh, being a, a young man and, and then a man. And what it started to do was show me the good of authority. Yeah. This is a proper way to think about the world. Yeah. And it started to make a lot of sense. So those are two of the things that I, I have benefited from greatly uh, in, the, in my exposure to Davenant. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading um, Andy Crouch's book, um, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And he makes a, a very similar point that part of, the, part of the problem with our relationship to something like power in our context is that we almost... We are, our minds as modern people, when we hear about power or something like hierarchy, um, almost automatically go to uh, coercive power. You know, it's mm -hmm. all about power over, it's all about, uh, you know, this thing being able to tell the thing under it what to do or something like that. Um, but there's another kind of power and there's another way hierarchies can function, even though there are, there are, there are moments in each of those where uh, I shouldn't say in each of those, there are moments in certain kinds of power authority relationships where coercive power can be a, a thing. You know, the state, for instance, is a, is a good example, or, sure. you know, you can restrain your child if you need to and these sorts of things. But most of what authority and power is in the primal mode of it, uh, as Crouch points out, is actually God's creation. It's actually mm -hmm. making something out of nothing. And the, in, the, in the primary mode of human power uh, kind of echoes, and the primary mode of human authority in some way kind of echoes God's own creative artful power, which is, which is ordering. It's, it's more about uh, being called to and being caught up in the process of giving the uh, giving giving order to and extracting the beauty of the world uh, and so yeah yeah the way you put it i think is just right is so much of the battle is is recovering the goodness recovering the goodness of the of the idea rather than um rather than just defending it i suppose what what, what i'm getting at there is that um very often what we're doing kind of rhetorically as Christians, especially in something like this, anytime we talk about hierarchy of power, we're kind of reacting to 
uh, all the modern egalitarians or the whatever, and then we're going over to, oh yeah, but uh, you know, the hierarchy principle. And it's right. just this thing that we establish over against this thing that we're reacting to. And what's missed in that, and it's so tragic, it's, so, it's just so tragic. What's missed in that is, but the goodness of it, it's attractive, it draws you in. Um, and, and I think of this in the case of Christ, I, I, you know, I've, I've yeah. just finished for the first time in a while uh, reading through the Gospels. Uh, and it really struck me, you know, Christ is so authoritative. He is full of power in the Gospels. And yet his exercise of power, especially, especially in moments when he's talking to people who've perhaps experienced human abuses of power, um, Christ's power is so redeeming. His authority is so is so healing, uh, and I think we miss that, and we miss that in the conversation about natural law as well. You know, yeah. there's something just good and and jolly about God's created order. You know that we're yeah. we're missing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's like um, you know Jesus is the greater Solomon. You know, he is the perfect wise king. Right. Um, and in Solomon, you see that sort of uh, proper use of authority with uh, recognition about, um, you know, just what it, 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 and if you read Ecclesiastes in particular, you see his heart of like searching the world, uh, mm. looking in his experiences, trying to really figure out what makes sense and what has meaning and purpose behind it. Yeah. Um, and then you read the Proverbs and you see um, an explanation, you know, is Solomon writing to his kid uh, who's going to be a king one day about, how he should rule yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and then Jesus shows up and he uh, puts flesh on all of that. And he shows everyone exactly what it's like to rule well, to live yeah. well, to be in perfect harmony with uh, the way that they have, uh, that God has created reality. Right. Solomon sort of sees, but does not, as, as we, as we find out, fully live the pattern. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and then, this, this is, for the most of us, right? Yeah, oh yeah, everybody, yeah, the, except for the greater Solomon, right? You know, <laughs> right. Who, who comes and, um, yeah, that's, that's right. I, I've always been, you know, I'm fascinated by this passage where the, um, you know, we all learned about this in Sunday school, but the, you know, the two women bring the, the baby to Solomon and sort of he has to discern whose, whose child this is, you know, these two women both claiming this baby. And, uh, you know, there's no mosaic law you know, if, if all of our wisdom and all of the way that we live our life is sort of like, where's the rules and what inferences can I draw from them? If it's all sort of math and algorithms, uh, there's not a lot for Solomon to go on in this circumstance. He actually has to read people. And, you know, it's not that he's abandoning the law. The law is an enormous aid. And in fact, you know, one might read the Proverbs as sort of a reflection on the order of reality that the law is getting at in a different, yes. in a different way. Uh, nevertheless, you know, when these women come to him, even when it comes to something like justice, Solomon has to be quite creative. You know, he has to think like, who are these women? How do I, how do I discern this? And he comes up with something that's a kind of test, as it were, that's not really in the law. And then you see this in, same thing in the, in the, in the, the cleverness of Jesus rhetorically, you know. Um, um, and similarly, you know, you were talking about having a broader sense of, of, of systematic categories. And I often think about this also in you know, in pastoral life, it's so common to kind of 
you get the impression that that maybe all we're supposed to do is sort of memorize the divine attributes and come yes. up with the definitions. And then pastorally, we can say something like, well, you know, God is just and merciful in this sort of thing. So I get to be just and merciful and whatever in this sort of thing. And, and uh, I've seen people, um, uh, how, how would you say this? They, they maybe are super harsh or super angry in a circumstance, in, in a pastoral circumstance and come off like really, you know, really, really hard. And the justification is very often, well, there's this Bible passage over here where God is hard on people, so mm -hmm. I can be hard on people. And what it misses is the link that's sort of, but when is God hard? When does God sort of land on the side of, okay, you know what, you're dust. And, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> you know, and the heart of God is actually like, let me, you know, let me help this guy out. He, he really doesn't get it. Or when the heart of God really is, no, you need a hard word right here. That's wisdom. Knowing when to bring the attributes of God to actually bear on a circumstance just takes knowing, just keeps grasping reality in a more internalized way. Um, and that's, that's not something that, uh, yeah, that's something that has to be discovered over a lifetime, you know. Go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. And I think um, the way that you, the way that you sort of tease that out is wonderful because <clears throat> I'll just speak from personal experience. Okay. So I grew up, I, I played football. Uh, dad was in the military, sort of rigid, structured life, um, good life. Uh, but sort of like ruled by rules. Right. And when I say that, I mean, you just must do this because I say you must do this. And I'm sure a lot of our experiences are the same, yeah. right? And, and, and yeah. that's okay. And there's a place for that. Yeah. That's what, right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. there's a place for that. But I think what we do is we create, we create this sort of uh, crutch in our mind that we don't have to think carefully about sticky situations if we can put enough things in a checklist to go through that we retreat to in right. order to solve whatever dilemma it is. Right. And then what we think about wisdom is it's sort of something that you reach out and grab a hold of when you need to figure out, should I take this job or this job? Or, you know, should we buy this house or this house? Or, you know, should we send the kids here or do this with them in their education? We don't look at wisdom as developing, um, like you talked about internalizing uh, the, the principles that we find in scripture and the patterns that we find in creation. We don't train ourselves like that. We want someone to just tell us what to do in every situation. Yeah, we're looking, we're looking for the algorithm that will sort of like, we often treat theology and ethics and even scripture. You can see this in some people's treatment of scripture as though it's kind of like a, and, and you know, you can't help but think maybe there's something of kind of modern, technological imagination involved here that it's like as if we if we if we just have the correct information we can sort of feed anything into the right. machine and out the other end will pop the answer sure and the danger the deep danger of that is that very often you know very often you have people you know the answer that pops out given your understanding is sometimes kind of hideous in fact and and I, and you even see people sometimes um, resist their own kind of native moral impulses, where it's sort of like, actually, that looks a little ugly, didn't doesn't it? Um, so maybe I've taken a wrong. And there's a piece of you that maybe says maybe I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. But when ideology sort of comes in and 
is the ace of spades, you know, it's the trump card here. It can come on and say, oh no, that feeling that you're having right now that maybe you've taken a wrong term somewhere, that's just your sin nature. Yes. You know, get rid of that. Uh, and that's that's quite dangerous because while that is not an infallible, well, while the conscience and while the kind of moral instinctual level of reality is certainly not infallible, um, it's often a signal that you're not quite there yet. And in fact, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago privately. Um, there's this Lewis quote that you uh, have bandied around the internet that I really enjoy. Uh, you, you told me to read the problem of pain and I did, and it's in there. Yes. And I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but Lewis basically says like, um, you know, you need not worry that when you study the law of God, that you're that um, you're gonna go, you're just gonna kind of like settle for ugliness. It's gonna rub you wrong, and you're just gonna be like, "Oh, this is terrible," but I guess it's God, so I got to do the thing. You know, that's actually a signal that probably you don't quite get what's going on here, because the law of God is actually compelling and it's innately beautiful, and it attracts and it draws human nature. And the real sinfulness of sin, actually. Um, is that we reject something that is actually quite appealing to mm. our to, to what we are by creation. It's actually that we resist and suppress something that our very created structure is moving, that we're agitating for as a created being. Um, and I think we have to capture that. And so when you see those moments, I think there's that, you know, when you see moments where it's sort of like, this looks kind of ugly, yeah. maybe that's a signal to you that, you, you're not doing it right. You know, um, authority, again, is a great example. Authority should not look ugly. And right. if it does, then, you know, maybe that's just you. I know we don't want to deny that that could be our sin nature, but it's not necessarily your, just your sin nature. It might actually be that that version of authority does actually look ugly. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you and I were also talking about this a couple of weeks ago, but the first sentence in Aristotle's Ethics, uh, he says, and I'm going to butcher this too, or I might, I might miss one of the things, but he says, every thought, act, and inquiry is aimed at some good. Mm. And that, 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 that uh, you know, meshes well with what Lewis was saying, which is that if you don't think that when you come into contact with God's law, you're going to have to make a 180 degree turn and go the opposite way that you already thought was the right way. Right. right. Like your instinct is to go towards the good and the true and the beautiful. And I think that, um, you know, Aristotle was saying the same thing. And we just know this be, because we're made in the image of God. Right. You know, I, here's perhaps what happened to me, Joe. I grew up in sort of real fundamentalist uh, congregations. Mm. And, you know, you were told the world is evil. And you can point to Bible passages and say, see, the yeah. world is wicked. Yeah. And as a, young, as a young mind, when I think about the world, I think about a big ball in space with trees and continents and snow and rain and lions and people and babies, right? Like the world. Yeah. And so I thought like the material world was the bad thing. Like nothing in this world is good because it's all fallen and broken and Satan is ruling everything and everything is like, you know, crushing in on me and I, I have to escape and, and uh, you know, just hide in the closet with my Bible and pray, right? Right. When that's the opposite of reality. Yeah. Uh, God made and he called everything good and man was very good. Yeah. Uh, yes, sin broke everything 
the goodness. And so our good instincts that we, would, that we naturally feel compelled towards are maligned and perverted with desires that impede and distort the beauty of that aim. Right. Um, but we're still moving towards that thing. Yes. I think that the longer that you practice in moving outside of that thing, um, whatever it is, you know, healthy respect for sexual relations in properly ordered relationships, right? Yeah. Um, like if we start to practice things outside of the way it should be harnessed, then we become more and more callous towards what we're actually, the good that we would normally go to. Right. And that's what Romans 1's getting at, right? Right. Like, the more you suppress, yeah. the harder you get. Right. But, the, but I think the key there is that you actually have to suppress it. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. It, so as I started to come out of fundamentalism and start to realize, no, it's not the world, it's not the material stuff in the world that's evil. It's these systems that are evil. It's the world systems. It's, uh, you know, philosophy that doesn't accord to Christ, Paul will say in Colossians. Right. Once I got that in, then it opened up everything. Like it was like, you know, the, the screen went from this to this big wide, wide shot of God's beautiful creative genius in something like a ladybug. Or, you know, something that you would just walk past and, and right. never consider. You look at that and you're like, this is an expression of God's creative genius. Right. And that creates a way to think about the world that turns, that, that you get in, well, it's just uh, the life of the mind. You begin that process. Yeah. And, and you start to ask real hard questions about yourself and what you don't know and it's almost like read. It's it's almost like just beginning to discover God in a way, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and it's interesting. That's that's uh, to to speak in good old Lutheran language here. You know, that's a trick of the devil, right? Is that a uh, sin? There's a way in which sin kind of atrophies the imagination, and I think what you what you see with sin is that sin closes the human mind. It closes. Yeah. It closes our grasp of the greatness of reality precisely because it's kind of like uh, you can only just be envious and complain and, and go through all these sinful actions if your focus is so narrowed. But, if you, but, but part of the sanctification process, I think you're right, is that opening of the soul to all of the kind of created splendor of reality and of history and of God's actions and of your own life and of God's forgiveness and of the gospel sort of infecting every single dimension of it and of the future. And, and, and the more your heart is sort of fattened with that just broad panoramic vision of reality, um, it's harder to complain. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> harder to whine know, about things as it turns yeah. out. You know, uh, and, not that sin isn't sin, not that it's not. And Lewis, Lewis is so good at this because he both captures, Lewis is really good at capturing sort of the, bra the broad panoramic spectrum of cre the beauty and jolliness of kind of created reality, but also the just profound degree to which we're more sinful than we could possibly think. And, that, and in fact, it's precisely because uh, of the broad, broad panoramic beauty of reality 
that our sinfulness, our atrophied imaginings, as it were, uh, is as bad as it is because it's so ungrateful. It's so distorting. It is so profoundly uh, harmful to us and to others because we live in such a small, we, we so often live in such a small kind of value system that really is quite pathological and normal. I mean, it's only not seen as pathological because it's so ordinary, you know, yeah. it's so, so common. And we all do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you talk about Lewis and, and joy, right? Um, which was a big theme with Lewis. But I, yeah. I think one of his other ones was love. And I think joy and love and charity, those sort of all say the same thing in different ways. Um, but you're right. It's ungratefulness. Um, I th and if you, I mean, God created, of course, for his own glory. But yeah. he also created us in his image uh, to be co-regents of the world, uh, to enjoy everything that he's given us. Yeah. Um, and I don't see how you can do that if you close yourself off from the world, from creation. Yeah. If you sort of just get trampled up into, or if, you're, if your mind just gets caught up into thinking like, okay, I have to love God because the Bible says that I have to love God and I have to love neighbor because the Bible says that I have to love neighbor. Right. Then that, you could almost go insane thinking that way. Um, and it can really do a lot of damage to your soul. Right. When you think about the world in terms of a response to your creator of gratitude, and that is love, you move outside of yourself out of pure gratitude for the love that he has shown you, then that frees you up. And it frees you up in a lot of ways. It frees you up to actually love your neighbor, to actually love your yeah. wife, to actually love your kids. Um, it also brings a, a, you know, a sense that <clears throat> I don't have to have everything perfectly figured out right now. Like God loves me yeah. and he's shown that to me. And I can feel comfortable that as long as I'm just loving God, then I'm in the right sort of stream right. of existence. Right. Um, so it guards against legalism. It guards against antinomianism because you're, you don't even have to think about it. It organically flows from you uh, because you're, you're uh, appreciating all the presence that your father has given you. Right. You know? uh, or at least... Um you know, to the extent that we're living this way, we don't have to think about it. The only, the only point at which we have to think about it is precisely, thinking about it is precisely the moment where we recognize we're not living that way. Right. So it's, uh, uh, you know, in Romans 1, speaking of gratitude, it's interesting, you know, we often focus on this for, for various reasons in Romans 1, but it's so fascinating to me how Romans 1 captures the pathology of paganism, really of our natural hearts in a way, by saying neither did they render God thanks, right? Which I think is kind of the opposite of envy. You know, you know, we're, we tend to be envious. You know, sort of wanting more and agitating for this irrational, almost just just irrational, impulsive sense of more because we can never be satisfied, partially because we were made for God, right? Right. right. Uh, but but they weren't grateful, which is which is 
you know, in the, in the garden, you know, the tree was good, uh, but it was envious to make one wise. That's the, the Hebrew word there is envious. There's envy. It's kind of the final kind of motivational stream that's mentioned in the text before she, she takes the fruit. And I think the opposite of that is gratitude, which is an active thing, which is actually looking at, staring at, and then, and then thanking God uh, for what he actually has given you. And, and it is interesting then that Paul's ethics, and I, li- I like the way you said that, you know, it flows naturally from, an, you know, once you're grateful, you know, when you really look around at the world and you say, I'm suspended above nothing and yeah. all of my being and all the things around me and my marriage and my children and sexuality and all of the, all of the, 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 the delights of creation are God's gifts to us precisely as, as they're, they're God's gifts to us, but they're, they're ways in which he also reveals himself to us. They're, they're gifts that kind of shove us beyond ourselves. Um, but Paul's ethics, it's so interesting to me in the New Testament, Paul's ethics is very much about gifts. We're, we're gift receivers and we've been given gifts. And, and what Paul imagines in the church, and I think he would, I think the implication of this actually goes out into society as well. And in Christian culture, you you see an increasing emphasis on this, that where we live in a relationship where reality, just being is a gift of God, but then everything you are in particular as Dale or as Joe yes, yes. or as uh, our pal Stephen Wedgworth or whatever, right, you, know, right, right, you know, you need to be Dale and I need to be Joe and he needs to be Stephen because those are gift. that's being a gift. Uh, and you need to go give that gift into the world and so much of the New Testament emphasis on what it's like to live in light of the gospel is to receive the gift of forgiveness uh, which enables you in some way to receive the gift of being a created, the, the created thing that you are, and then to go give that uh, to, to your neighbor. Mm. And so there's such a seamlessness. It's so interesting when people ask this, what's the greatest commandment? Yeah. Singular. That's what they ask Jesus. And he responds with two, you know, love your God, love God. And the first is, lo- the second is like it. You know, he's very explicit. It's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's such a, we're missing something, I think, if there's not almost a kind of a boomerangish seamlessness between what it means to love God and then go love your neighbor, partially precisely because your neighbor is actually, and this is the, I think, the epiphany that is just all over the writings of Lewis, and it's so beautiful. The gifts of your neighbor are God's own presence in the world. To love your neighbor, to love the created thing that is them, just is to love, as it were, God's own traces in reality. And so what you wind up doing is you wind up becoming jealous that God's own traces be preserved in whatever threatens his traces, that is your neighbor's sin, be gotten rid of. And so you can speak to your neighbor in love about their sin, like, hey, you know, this is really tripping you up. Uh, for the sake of what is actually just godlike in them, you know, that speaking to your neighbor now becomes, I, I really, what I would love to see in your life is, uh, is to see the glory of God that he's put in you right. manifested and unleashed. And so often when, when you see people that love, kind of, kind of easy, find it easy to walk around rebuking people, right. uh, that element is just so missing. What's missing is like, but, but you you have something that's actually just smashed down and repressed. But there's a glory here that is scandalously hidden 
that could be unleashed into the world. And so Lewis has these great quotes where he basically says, we're always helping people, every encounter with another human being, every encounter is helping people either become an angel or become a demon. Right. You're, you're, you're never moving in one of, there's no neutral encounter. You're either going there or there. And every time you speak to another being, you are either helping them in that direction or in that direction. And it's such a, um, I think that captures the New Testament ethic in such a perfect, precise way. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about um, uh, Jesus's sort of rhetoric and hopefully what we're doing, like um, the way that we're framing up our project is we're having conversations. So yeah. Yeah. part of it, and you and I have talked about this, part of it is modeling what, what good conversations, because you and I don't agree with, on, every, on everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And you're <laughs> um, wrong about the things. Uh, that's what I was going to say. You're, you're wrong about a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but that um, understanding of gratitude, the understanding that God has, again, pulling on Lewis, uh, God has given the raw materials of Minnickness and Stenbergness and Wedgworthness. Um, he's given this to us, and that, that's what he molds. That's what he's yeah. perfecting. And that, when we finally reach glory, that'll be the state that we exist in forever. Yeah. Um, so we're on, we are on this um, sort of, we're living out our, own, our stories, and God has made us characters in those stories. Yeah. And we shouldn't try to reach outside of us and grab a hold of the attributes of the other guy in the story that we would really want to have as part of us. Now, this isn't to say that we don't have mentors and leaders. Yeah. You know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we do, we follow where the good is, but we should yeah. recognize that we're going to follow those. Uh, we're going to follow those patterns of good behavior. We're going to follow those patterns of righteousness and holiness. Like I'm going to follow them. Yeah. So they're going to have a lot of overlap with other Christians. This is yeah. why when we assemble, there's a unity and a harmony that's not found in just a social club or something. Right. Um, but we're all dedicated to loving and knowing Christ more. Yeah. And so there's a unified vision. Yeah. Um, but we're all doing it in our own unique ways. And to think that that is so somehow wrong is to really deny God's uh, cr creative genius in the church. Yeah. Uh, the body is made up of many parts and everything yeah. sort of functions as it is. And it's a liberating feeling, Joe, when you can say, okay, like God loves me and I have all the stuff that God loves and yeah. stuff is unique. Mm. To me. That frees me from a bunch of sort of mental spiritual slavery yeah you don't have to you don't have anything to prove right and that is just to, to not have anything to prove to men right is the most liberating spiritual reality in a way right yeah god is yeah. able to be dale right exactly yeah. and, and precisely this... because that is how you are most like god right. that's that's actually the trick right yeah, yeah right yeah and i i think that especially today. Listen, you know, I, I, I have no illusions about where we're at, at least in America. Yeah. You, you can look around the world too, and it's like, what's happening? Everything's falling apart, right? Um, but one of the tendons, one of the things that I see emerging that has really 
helped change me because I've, I've witnessed the impulses of where I would like to go in terms of my discourse with my enemies or even with people in the church that I disagree with. You know, you think, okay, we're in crisis mode. It's time to lay aside all of these fluffy sort of things and pick up your battle axes, men. Let's go out there and, you know, win this one for King Jesus. And I think that we all need that. That's a healthy impulse. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it can turn into something that's very ugly mm. when, you, when, when, you, uh, when everything's a nail and you're the hammer. When you think everybody should look like a foot soldier, then you deny that there are generals and sergeants and, you yeah. know, you need the diverse uh, forces of God's yeah. kingdom to that's fight a, this thing well. That's an interesting, uh, you know, I wrote an article not quite a year ago, but on the culture wars. And one of the things that, um, one of the things, one of the points I made there was that um, we can, we can talk about, kind of accidental coordination in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Very often people take kind of various approaches to culture and there's three, you know, three or four people, you know, three or four camps where, you know, we should approach this, this particular way of culture. Um, and, and, and indiv taken individually, sometimes it's like, yeah, I understand why you take this approach or you maybe you're a little more adversarial against this, that, or the other. Uh, and yet I always, I, I find myself wondering, um, Especially because they tend, I think most Christians talking about culture, even even kind of intellectuals talking about culture, tend to sort of say this is the the way we should be approaching to culture implicitly, as opposed to all those other ways. And there's a part of me that wonders, like, why why don't we think you know in any war, um, the general has several battalions, uh, and they're all doing different things. Actually, they're all right. taking different approaches. So the idea that you would, you know, um, you know, buy a big piece of land and, and have kind of like a, a project of let's figure out how to use this land well and have a common project and have public worship on it and whatever. Like there's some people interested in things like that. That's great. Like you know, there's part of me that says like, you know, as such, you know, spoken in itself, that's great. Where it becomes ungreat is where it's where that ever becomes a sort of statement that like, that means every other Christian that's doing the opposite of this should be doing this and this is righteousness and that's ungodliness. That's just not true. <laughs> that doesn't, right. that doesn't follow. I, I apologize, but it uh, turns out you can do more than one thing for the glory of Jesus. And again, I think that's where it goes back. I'm just more and more fascinated, not just from a, a biblical strategic perspective, but also from a just a basic, like philosophically ethical perspective on the New Testament emphasis on the gifts. The gifts are so important because they're natural. They they come that the gifts aren't aren't separated from what you are and what your aptitudes are. Sure. And they're brought together, brought to bear. And that's true in an individual community. All of the individual gifts are brought to bear not just for me. I don't just use my talents and my gifts for my own sake, which is what sin does, mm. but I turn that around and I use it for my neighbor's sake. And that's what the church is. But the church is a kind of training ground for what that looks like in a larger social project as well. Uh, sure. A godly society is one where the individual aptitudes and gifts are, are, are brought to bear within a, in a communal context. And it seems to me that there's, a, there's perhaps a, some principles and a theology there um, that could say, 
this is also maybe what a cultural approach looks like. Maybe there's several approaches that God is actually coordinating in aggregate to produce just his effect. And right. we should honor and be deferential to the instincts of other believers who are trying to follow Jesus in these ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think uh, going about the sort of uniformed approach that you're talking about, um, it's just not wise either. And we actually don't believe this as Christians. Uh, even though some act like the, you know, they really do, they don't. At least if they're in a Christian that has an, organiz an organized structure of authority. So for example, when we're looking for elders, uh, the Bible gives us a list of qualifications that elders should meet. Right. But what you don't do is take somebody that obviously doesn't have any of the gifts and then try to shove the gifts into him to make him the elder. Right. What you're looking for is young men that already have the sort of hint of the gift. And then you're trying to feed it and you're trying to groom it and you're trying to grow it and make it come out of him so that he can see it for himself and the church can recognize it as a, as a uh, body of believers and then install him, uh, you know, into leadership. Right. Um, and that's, that's a microcosm of what is happening everywhere is that we're, right. we're all given these things and we're all trying to cultivate them. And, you know, this gets at uh, um, friendships, you know, you and I are friends and yep. uh, we talk often and, what's so good about the conversations between us is that I think there's this reciprocal energy that sort of picks up where you're both feeding off of one another's insights and you're reaching a place that things are becoming more and more crystallized. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, you, cause you were talking about community there. It's so extremely, but if you, sh but if you don't, ha if you're not open to even thinking that that's the way it is, and you shut yourself off from that and you demand sort of like uh, cooperation on your terms and your terms alone, you're, you're, that's what fools do. That's a foolish yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Um, that's a great, real, real quick. Sure. Um, and really, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe by, um, by, by way of, 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 of concluding our, our, our session here, maybe, sure. maybe talk to us about, um, you know, how do we avoid that? Because the danger of something like the Davenant Institute, and I think it's wise to talk about this out loud, right, is the danger of something like the Davenant Institute, which has its kind of pile of distinctive emphases, which are good. Uh, good emphases, we're, 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 we both, we're both here because we think they're good emphases, but the danger is that they become just another kind of package of uh, right. identity badges. They, they, the danger is that it becomes something that's sort of like, oh, here's the things that we care about and we're so discouraged because all the other Christians, you know, don't do the thing correctly or whatnot. <laughs> um, you know, any, the, the, the human heart always has the capacity to instrumentalize the truth and make it about myself. And so maybe maybe a, a good kind of closing question is sort of like where how do we avoid that how do we how do we live humbly before the truth and have a project that is about dialogue that is about sort of this friendship co-arriving at Christ co-arriving at the truth yeah. uh, through the insights that God has respectively given us and through that mutual sharpening in a way that doesn't uh, um, 
Yeah, in a way that doesn't make it about us mm. and doesn't make the project something that kind of reflexively dismisses other Christians, which is often measured, I, I'd want to say, I think, maybe I'm wrong. I think it's often measured in the degree to which we're just only discouraged. You walk around and you see people and all they can see in the church is, oh, look how far away it is from what it should be. <laughs> and it's like you miss like, yeah, but but there's also a lot that's good. <laughs> God, sure. is do, God is doing things and you should be just as nervous. You should be just as, you should be just as OCD, if you will, about failing to see the gift of God because that's such a huge thing that we risk. We will perhaps fail to see where God actually is at work because the only thing that we care about is just this thing over here, which is because it's what we do. You know, it's our yeah, thing, right, you know? Right. Yeah, I think, um, so I think just asking the question is on, you, we're already on the way towards staying away from the danger. Yeah. So recognition <laughs> is big, right? We're doing the right thing, guys. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, and at least examining motivations, because you're right, we, are, we do tend to take good things and distort them. I mean, that's just what sin is. Right. Um, and we're, we're so um, blind towards what we don't know that we're, that we become uh, vulnerable towards going off the deep end somewhere. Uh, so anyway, I think that one of the things that, one practical approach towards guarding against that is reminding everyone that there is no special diet that you can put yourself on in terms of parachurch ministry organizations to arrive at the truly reformed you know, meme or, you're never going to reach in up to the archetype and become the thing, right? Right. That's just true. Um, right. And even people that really go after that, they'll just tell you that that's true because they probably feel disappointed in themselves. Right. The <laughs> <'Cause they cry. laughs> right. Um, but what you can do is recognize that along the way, as you mature as a Christian, you're going to be exposed to things and your initial sort of response should be humility. Like, okay, yeah. I see this, and maybe I just want to be revolted by it. And some things we should just be revolted yeah, by. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, but more oftentimes than not, we really don't know as much as we think we know. Right. Um, so I would say that prudential sort of um, approaches to ministries like the Davenant are vital for your spiritual health. You go into it with your eyes wide open. Don't get sucked up into the thing fully because nothing should have all of your allegiance. Right. right? Except right. for Christ. Right. Uh, We're telling you, don't listen to us yeah, right. for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, and I guess just, yeah, a lot of it is like, does this, um, does this seem like it's in alignment with something that I would consider good? Yeah. or true, or beautiful, Yeah, and give your ear there. And, you know, what you and I want to do is we, 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 I mean, you and I are a lot alike in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but one thing that we're really alike in is we really want to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And that may sound sort of like life coachy, right? Yeah. Like, oh, these guys just want to, you know, sit down and everyone get out the guitar, strung kumbaya, string kumbaya, yeah. everything's going to be dandy. We're not any under, we, we're not 
we're not lying to ourselves about how the world is. Right. But as Christians, I think we're called to um, reflect Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. Right. And so as we pursue living a life that's in alignment with God's revelation and creation and his revelation in the scriptures, and we can come together and talk about it and say to each other, that sounds good, you're way off here, and do it without all the pretentious sort of like false bravado and um, created sort of personas that we want the world to think. If we can just be genuine with one another, everybody's going to benefit from that. Even the people that will probably have a very hard time in being genuine, they're going to see it and go, man, I wish I had that sort of thing. Um, And how this relates to the Davenant is, I guess we're just sort of throwing ourselves out there. You you made the joke, don't listen to us, but you should be interpreting us that way too. Yeah. Like, uh, and we want to be very open and honest with you. You be very open and honest with us and together we can, Uh, figure out how to love Jesus, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Is that part of what Davenant has always been about is, is bringing people into a grand and whole person conversation, you know, a a kind of a recovery of the old Republic of letters, right. You know, which was, which was largely just about people being brought into the, to the grand conversation about reality and how it works. Um, in a way that's non kind of zero sum competition, like sure. here's my insights versus yours or whatever. And there's something healing about that. And I think there's something just fundamentally Christian about it because it's not, you know, the, the goal is for it not to be egocentric and, and it to be a kind of, yeah, well, yeah I'm repeating right. myself a little bit no. there. Um, yeah, yeah. So we'll have many, um, well, many conversations like this, we have a, go ahead. You're, it looks like you're well, I was just going to say before we go. Um, yep. So um, I will link, I'll actually shoot you the links, but um, we'll have a Facebook page and a Facebook group that's set up uh, specifically, specifically for Pilgrim faith. And that way people can come on and ask questions and uh, throw oh, yeah. suggestions and follow us uh, as we post content and stuff like that. Um, so we'll have that set up and, uh, hopefully we, I mean, you and I are talking about a lot of really exciting, cool little projects we could do with this thing. Uh, so I guess stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll, uh, we'll, we should be putting out a, about one of these a week. And so, uh, uh, come back and join us and, uh, Dale, good to s- Good to, to have you for our, our, our maiden voyage here. Love you, bro. And we'll, we'll love uh, you too, brother. Yeah. All right. We'll talk soon. See everybody next time.